Welcome to my podcast, my dad podcast. This is the 1787 Project, the podcast version of the lectures for my socially distanced class on the U.S. Constitution at the University of Missouri. I'm your professor and host, Justin Dyer. Today we're talking about the Supreme Court as an institution, how it came to be what it is and how it goes about its business, and significantly how it decides to hear cases. But first, a short history. In Federalist No. 51, you'll recall, Publius took up the question of how the Constitution will maintain the partition of power between different institutions, how it will maintain the separation of powers in practice. His solution significantly was not to have the Supreme Court decide all constitutional questions, or to police the boundaries between the different institutions of the federal government. It was instead to use ambition to counteract ambition, and the court was just one player in this larger system. But according to Publius, it was the weakest player. Federalist 78 notes that the court has neither force nor will but merely judgment. It can't execute the law, it can't appropriate money. It can only pronounce judgments in specific cases, and its power comes from the respect bestowed on it by other institutions, the degree to which other actors in American politics are willing to submit to the court's decisions. At the beginning, it wasn't that powerful of an institution. The first Chief Justice, John Jay, left the court after five years to become the governor of New York, a job he saw as a step up. It wasn't even until 1803 that the court exercised the power of judicial review or the idea that they could declare a law unconstitutional. But even then, it was pretty limited in terms of how the court exercised the power, and the idea was met with great controversy. So it wasn't obvious from its beginnings that the court would become a major power player in American politics, but it has. It claims for itself a primary role in constitutional interpretation, and the federal courts have grown in power and prestige over time, seemingly growing by the year. Today, the Chief Justice is the head of the federal judiciary, employs about 900 federal judges, has an annual budget of over $8 billion. And as the 19th century French observer of American politics, Alexis de Tocqueville, noted, scarcely any political question arises in the United States that's not resolved sooner or later into a judicial question. Many of the most contentious political questions wind up eventually at the Supreme Court, and we, for the most part, fall in line with the court's decisions. How did this happen? When the Constitution was ratified in the summer of 1788, the federal government didn't exist yet. In September of 1787, the Constitutional Convention proposes the Constitution for ratification by state ratifying conventions. In June of 1788, New Hampshire then is the ninth state to ratify the Constitution goes into effect for those nine states. The Continental Congress then schedules the first federal elections that are held in December and January of that year, and the Electoral College meet in February of 1789 to elect George Washington as president. Washington takes the oath of office in April of 1789. Congress then convenes for the first time on May 4, 1789. What about the judiciary? Well, it hadn't even been created yet and wouldn't meet for another year, a fact that underscores just how much the courts depend for their existence on the other branches of government. Article 2 of the Constitution tells us that the president, quote, shall nominate and by and with the advice and consent of the Senate shall appoint judges of the Supreme Court. And Article 3 of the Constitution vests, quote, the judicial power of the United States in one Supreme Court and in such inferior courts as the Congress may from time to time ordain and establish. It tells us that judges will hold their office during good behavior, meaning that judges like professors have tenure for life unless they do something really bad. 
And Article 3 sketches out the jurisdiction of the federal courts, the areas where they have the lawful authority to hear and decide cases. But beyond that, it doesn't tell us much about the structure of those courts, how they'll operate, how many Supreme Court justices there will be, how many other courts will exist, and how those judgeships will be filled. Until Congress acts, those courts don't exist, including the Supreme Court, and Congress has to fill in a lot of the details. And until there's a president, nobody can be nominated to the Supreme Court. Until there's a Senate, no one can be confirmed. Now, these initial details were filled in by the Judiciary Act of 1789, a bill whose primary architect was Oliver Ellsworth of Connecticut, one of the original delegates to the Constitutional Convention. The act set the number of Supreme Court justices at six. Congress changed that number six different times. It ranged from five to ten before 1869, and then it was set at nine, where it still is today. The act also gave us our three-tiered federal court system. Beneath the Supreme Court are circuit courts of appeal. Beneath those are trial courts organized by district. Today we have 94 district-level trial courts and 13 courts of appeals organized by circuit. In Columbia, Missouri, we're in the Western District of Missouri and in the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals. So to take an example of how this system would work in practice, consider the recent case of Trinity Lutheran Church versus Comer in 2017. The Missouri Department of Natural Resources was operating a program where they would give schools grants to purchase old bits of recycled tires to resurface their playgrounds. Trinity Lutheran Church here in Columbia operates a preschool and a daycare, and they applied for one of these grants. The person running the grant program, advised by attorneys, I'm sure, looked at Article 1, Section 7 of the Missouri Constitution and concluded that they couldn't give any kind of government grant directly to a church like Trinity Lutheran. Article 1, Section 7 of the Missouri Constitution says that, quote, no money shall ever be taken from the public treasury directly or indirectly in aid of any church, sect, or creed of religion or any form of religious faith or worship. So it seems pretty straightforward. No money, direct or indirect, can be drawn from the treasury to help any church. But Trinity Lutheran said, hold on, the First and Fourteenth Amendments to the U.S. Constitution protect us from being discriminated against on account of our religion. We can't be excluded from the grant program just because we're a church. So now we have a legal dispute. It involves a matter of federal constitutional law and not just state constitutional law. And remember, state office holders have sworn an oath of allegiance to the U.S. Constitution, and the U.S. Constitution declares itself to be supreme over state laws and state constitutions. So how do we sort this out? Well, Trinity Lutheran then files a complaint with the U.S. District Court for the Western District of Missouri. The District Court dismisses Trinity Lutheran's complaint, so they appeal to the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals. But at the Eighth Circuit, they lose again. The Eighth Circuit affirms the District Court's decision to dismiss the case. So they've lost at the district court, they lost at the circuit court, and then Trinity Lutheran appeals the case to the Supreme Court of the United States. The Supreme Court agrees to hear the case. They ultimately side with Trinity Lutheran. They say that the exclusion of a church from eligibility for the grant program violates the U.S. Constitution. And I assume if you go over to Trinity Lutheran today, you'd see little bits of rubber instead of pebbles on its playground, but I haven't been over there to check. Now, an important point that I glossed over when recounting the case of Trinity Lutheran the Supreme Court agreed to hear their case on appeal from the Eighth Circuit, but it didn't have to. In fact, the Supreme Court only agrees to hear about 1% of the cases that are appealed to it each year. In a typical year, the court is asked to review something between 7,000 and 8,000 cases. Last term, they heard just 74 cases. It's about the average that they've had over the last decade, somewhere in the mid-70s. For the cases coming on appeal, the Supreme Court has complete discretion over whether they'll take the case or not, and this actually is a source of great power for the court. It helps explain how the court has become as powerful as it has. 
Jonathan Sternberg has a wonderful article from the 2008 issue of the Journal of Supreme Court History called Deciding Not to Decide, and it details how the court came to wield this power in the first place. Here's some of the highlights. In the 1821 case of Cohen's versus Virginia, Chief Justice John Marshall said that the Supreme Court had, quote, no more right to decline the exercise of jurisdiction which is given than to usurp that which is not given. The one or the other would be treason to the Constitution. Questions may occur which we would gladly avoid, but we cannot avoid them. All we can do is to exercise our best judgment and conscientiously to perform our duty. That duty was to decide the case. And Sternberg observes that today the Supreme Court does exactly the opposite. Given complete discretion over its docket, far more often than not, the court declines to exercise jurisdiction and thus avoids the overwhelming majority of questions put before it, something that Chief Justice John Marshall considered constitutional treason. So what happened? The short answer is the Judiciary Act of 1925, which is the brainchild of Chief Justice William Howard Taft, who also happened to be the only person to have been appointed to the Supreme Court after having served as President of the United States. Taft won the election of 1908, but then he lost to Woodrow Wilson in a three-way race just four years later. The ex-president then took up a post as a law professor at Yale, and while he was at Yale, he pondered deeply the question of judicial reform. The problem, as he saw it, was that there were far too many cases coming to the Supreme Court, and the court couldn't keep up with its growing workload. And because of that, the most valuable thing the court does, which, according to Taft, was constitutional interpretation, would suffer. They'd be spread far too thin. When President Warren Harding then nominated Taft to be the chief justice of the Supreme Court, he took it, and he began implementing his plan. What was needed, he said, was some way for the court to, quote, retain full jurisdiction to pronounce the last word on every important issue under the Constitution and the statutes of the United States and on all important questions of general law with respect to which there's a lack of uniformity in the intermediate federal courts of appeal. Taft asked three of the justices on the Supreme Court to draft a bill along those lines, giving the court complete discretion over the cases it hears. If these names mean anything to you, the three justices were Van Devanter, McReynolds, and Sutherland. Taft then presented this bill that those three justices wrote to the House Judiciary Committee in 1922. After several years of debates, at times contentious, Congress then passed Taft's bill in 1925, known as the Judge's Bill. What the bill did was this. It gave the Supreme Court discretion over the cases it hears through what is called certiorari jurisdiction. When a case is appealed to the Supreme Court from a federal circuit court or from a state court of last resort, the Supreme Court can decide whether to grant a writ of certiorari, a legal order to a lower court to deliver its case record for review. Now, how this works in practice is that the losing parties in a circuit case or a state case will file a petition with the court to issue this writ or to grant cert. And in only a few cases does the court ever say yes to those petitions. This is a significant change from when Chief Justice John Marshall said it would be constitutional treason for the Supreme Court not to decide a case that came before it. The discretion that the court has here shaped the modern federal courts in two specific ways that were foreseen by Howard Taft. First, the Judiciary Act of 1925 empowered the circuit courts of appeals. 99% of the time, the circuit court is the last word on the cases that come before it. During her confirmation hearings, if you remember, Justice Sonia Sotomayor drew some criticisms for a comment that surfaced she had made on camera, saying that the circuit courts are where policy gets made. The criticism was that the courts shouldn't be making policy, but the reality is that cases have policy implications. Think of Trinity Lutheran and the Playground Resurfacing Program. And most of the time, the circuit court decisions stand. So in that sense, if we want to look at it in that way, the circuit courts are making policy, or at least making decisions with some serious policy implications. Second, 
The Supreme Court's own role has shifted from rendering justice in each case brought before it to articulating principles of law that can be followed by lower courts and ironing out legal disagreements among the circuit courts. As Chief Justice Taft himself said, the Supreme Court should exist to expound and stabilize principles of law and to preserve uniformity among the lower courts and not to preserve the rights of the litigants in every single federal case that's appealed to it. We take this power to decide whether to hear cases for granted today, but it's important one for the Supreme Court. It's augmented its authority over time. So in practice, how does this work? Well, someone loses at the Circuit Court of Appeals or the Court of Last Resort in one of the states, like we talked about with Trinity Lutheran. They file a petition with the Supreme Court asking them to grant a writ of certiorari or a writ of cert that'll direct the lower court to deliver its case materials for review. The court gets 7,000 or 8,000 of these cases each year. And so to manage the load, the justices rely on their law clerks to review petitions and to make recommendations to them. From those recommendations, the Chief Justice then creates a list of petitions that the justices will discuss together in conference. They then discuss the list, they vote whether to hear each case that's on the list, whether to grant cert in that case, and it takes only four justices to grant cert in a particular case, and so if you can have four justices agree to take your case, then the court will take it. Most of the time, the court doesn't explain why it's denied a cert petition. You just get a document from the court saying that cert has been denied, but every once in a while, one of the justices will write a dissent from the decision to deny cert and say something like, these are the reasons why I think we should have taken that case. Back in June, for example, there was a petition for cert in the case called Baxter v. Bracey. The court's order simply says the petition for a writ of certiorari is denied, but then it records a dissent from Justice Clarence Thomas. The case involved a guy who was bit by a police dog while burglarizing a house. He alleged the police released the dog on him after he had already surrendered, and so he sued the police for damages. But the Sixth Circuit Court held that the police weren't legally liable under this doctrine called qualified immunity, which gives some police officers immunity to lawsuits for things they do in the official line of duty. Justice Thomas doesn't think the qualified immunity doctrine has any constitutional or statutory basis, and he wanted to take the case, and he explained his reasons for wanting to take it. But he needed three others, and he didn't get it. And we might ask, well, why did Justice Thomas write down his dissent, and why didn't he get three other justices in the court to agree to hear that case at that time? And there might be all sorts of different reasons for all of those things. And it's important to think through the audience for those petitions and those denials and why you might vote to hear a case at one time and not another. Once four justices do agree to hear a case, which happens, again, only about 1% of the time, the case is then placed on the docket. The court establishes a deadline for parties to file briefs and then schedules oral arguments. After oral arguments, the court then discusses the merits of the case again in conference, votes, and assigns the opinion writing. This whole process puts the court in a powerful position in American politics, so much so that shaping the Supreme Court through judicial appointments has become a huge political issue that voters care deeply about. And that leaves us with a question which we'll explore next time. How does the court go about the business of deciding what to decide in any particular case? How do they wield this power? How do they approach constitutional and statutory interpretation?